Imagine you picked up the most important book in the world, a book with words that can transform hearts. Now imagine it was full of highlights and notes in the margin, and you could see how this book has transformed someone's heart. This is the Podcast. These are the discussions of twin pastors who share their underlining and highlighting. Welcome back to the Notable Podcast. Uh, like we say, we call ourselves that not because we think we're notable, but simply because we are uh, taking note of what Scripture says and uh, taking it taking it into our hearts. We are moving into the final chapter of Habakkuk today, and it is uh, quite a chapter. Quite a chapter. I, I think maybe it's worthwhile introducing the chapter like this. Think of this chapter as an absolute brilliant piece of art, a spirit-inspired piece of art. And the art in reminds me actually of the artist Leonardo da Vinci. I've, I've always loved Leonardo da Vinci. He's such a genius. My wife, um, always laughs at me because I have this t-shirt with the last supper on it and somebody made it for me because they know the Lord's Supper they said I know how much you love the Lord's Supper so I have this t-shirt and I wear it around and I love that it reminds me of the forgiveness of sins uh, what we're doing as Christians receiving Christ but also I I really like Leonardo da Vinci Uh, he has created what is arguably the most famous and important piece of art in human history. And the question becomes, what makes what makes the Mona Lisa so special? What is it about Leonardo da Vinci that makes it so special? And what people say about Leonardo da Vinci is that he has the ability to paint the inner life of, of a person. So he can actually um, psychologize somebody right there in the material world. And so what he, what Leonardo da Vinci does so brilliantly is he can combine the inner and the outer uh, with genius. And that's actually what makes the Mona Lisa the Mona Lisa. If you, people who know art will point out to you that if you look very, very carefully at the Mona Lisa, it is as if she's alive. And the reason why is that if you if you if you study her, you notice that she doesn't have any hard lines. And so it's almost as if she pulses and enervates with life. She just she really just jumps out of the, the portrait. And so you start experiencing um, her in real life as if it's real life. And in, in, in the psychology of her face, of course, is so, um, so famous and important. But one thing that you have to notice about the Mona Lisa, and this is where it's important for us today, is that she is setting, if you look at the painting very carefully, you will notice that there she is in the psychology of, of, of her face, um, inviting us to ponder the wand, the wonder of life. That's what it is. It's the wonder of life. But it's set against a backdrop of horror and darkness. 
And Leonardo da Vinci there in that portrait is inviting us then to ponder the wonder of life as it's set against horror. And that is that is actually, I know Timothy, you want you want to talk about joy, the wonder of life set against the backdrop of darkness and horror. And that's exactly what we have here. And we have a poetic tour de force. It is spirit inspired. And when you experience it, and, and this is why I'm talking about it like this, the, the, the poetry invites you not just to read it, but to enter into it. And then to ex it's, it's almost as if you're experiencing God because you actually are through his word. And there's wonder in that, but it is set against a backdrop of horror. Yeah, Jonathan, I think that's a really great visualization of one of the most beautiful chapters in the whole Bible, back chapter three. And I think it's worth it even before we like start considering the chapter just to to take a, a you know back up the lens a little bit and look at where we've come Habakkuk one and two and listen back to the episodes if you haven't listened to them is it really this dialogical conversation that Habakkuk needs to have with God in order to heal and last week we 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 left it with him just being completely silent. Um, and the historical critical scholars will say, well, well, that's the end of the book. Um, and what you have in chapter three is this tag on, but but really, I don't read the, the book of Habakkuk like that at all. Like Habakkuk chapter three is really the culmination of the entire book. Like it, at the beginning of the book, emotionally, Habakkuk is this distraught, near hopeless wrecked prophet and all, now we're going to get this beautiful poetic you said tour de force and he is able to see god in whole new ways whole new ways the other thing about this chapter that's so beautiful is not not just being able to see god and we're going to see god it is also we get this glimpse into habakkuk's humanity and his response, like his physical response, we'll look at that, excuse me, his emotional and spiritual response. And he comes to, we're going to see that he comes to, over these last closing episodes, he comes to this place of joy, um, of wonder, like you said about the Mona Lisa, but also to this place of incredible strength, because now he knows where, where to turn. And um, this is this this last chapter, this culminating chapter, is so so healing. It's so so important. It's going to bring us to the heights, you might say, of um, where God can take a broken, grieving prophet and then move him and us with him to this whole new place. I want to I want to get into like the the nuts and bolts of the, the poetry in the chapter in a second. But before we do that, I want to make one, one sort of aside. And that is to point out that Habakkuk 3 verse 1 says, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigianoth. And then the, the actually the very end of the book of Habakkuk says, 
for the director of music on my stringed instruments. And so here we are getting what I'll call musical and liturgical instructions. And what we find out from that is that this is actually um, not, not just poetry that's meant to be read, it is meant to be sung. And it is meant to be sung actually inside of liturgical community. In other words, the church is meant to experience and sing this song together. And before I go any further, I wanted to just help help us all think about that. First of all, we have here uh, the expectation that Christians are going to be gathering together and they are going to be singing together. <laughs> and it is there, we learn, the New Testament is so explicit on this, it is there inside of the church, when we're singing God's word to each other, when, when we're singing this encounter with God together, it is there where God is doing incredible things. If all we ever do with this chapter is we experience it solo, um, only devotionally, only by ourselves, um, we have not yet plumbed the depths of what it means for us. The Holy Spirit moves. Um, and, and Jesus himself said that, where two or three come together in my name. There is something about singing God's word together that is powerful and healing um, and incredibly necessary for the life of, of, of the church. And so here Habakkuk is gifting this liturgically to the church so that so that when we together are experiencing um, something like the Babylonian captivity, something like exile, we can come together and in the name of Jesus sing this this countervailing song, this this countercultural song, this this beautiful and have this liturgical moment that forms us and that spiritually guides us. Well, it's quite, it, I, I don't have, I think what you said is so beautiful there, Jonathan, and you're right. There's, there's something incredibly powerful and healing and moving about coming together to sing God's praises. And that's, that is exactly what Habakkuk has for us here. It's really, this is so different than the beginning of the book. I can't, I can't mark that enough or highlight that enough. The accusations are gone, and now it's a meditation uh, on who God is, and really a recorded response to how how Habakkuk um, reacts to this coming to this coming of God, and it's it's just a marvelous chapter of the Bible. It's just it's just incredible. I think you should take us into it a little bit. Yeah. So the. We're going to take this in, in parts, the poetry in parts. And what we want to do first is we just want to notice that God, God is coming. God is coming. Uh, we're going to see at, at one point he arrives in, in the poetry, but here we're anticipating God coming. And I, I'm going to read the, the poetry here. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. 
His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. But he marches on forever. I saw the tents of Cushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses and your chariots to victory? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. You know, so so a couple things, just looking at this structurally. The first is that it, it opens up with a prayer and then um, a call for, for God's mercy on, on his life. And that's verse two. And then we erupt fully into the poetry. And verses three through seven, it seems you can notice that God is on the way. And verses 8 through 10, and that's where we, we finished up to this point at least, You you what you see is that suddenly Habakkuk um, seems to be indicating us to us that God has now arrived. He's actually there. And the reason why we sense that is because Habakkuk changes to second person um, language. He says, were you angry with the river's Lord? So now... It seems we go from God coming and we see him coming to God now being here. Now, what's particularly um, evocative here, a couple things. One is we can notice that we have here a very tight, what I'll call Exodus type language. This is the same language uh, that Moses used when when giving to us um, the Exodus. Uh, so we see that God's on a mountain, um, a very particular mountain, Teman, Mount Paran. We, we hear about plagues. We hear about the earth shaking. We hear about the nations trembling. This is, we see, this is, we see God pictured here as, as a man of war. All of this is, is uh, Habakkuk here appropriating the language of the Exodus. And a couple things I'll notice about that. First of all, God is coming with intensive power. So like this, there's so much power here. In verse four, it says his, his splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. So here um, Habakkuk is saying lightning is coming, rays are flashing. And when when God is is um, doing the exodus, when God is is doing plagues, and and you're seeing God act, there this is so this is so um, the the word I want to use is subversive. The it says that His power is hidden in that. So in other words, even when you see God. Um, doing the most powerful things he's ever done in world history, like like the plagues in Egypt, you are actually not yet seeing God. You are not yet seeing any of the extent of his power. It's still hidden. 
This is how powerful God is. So the intensiveness of God's power as he comes. And then you also see the extensiveness of it. So in verses six and seven, you see that God is marching on forever. You're seeing that um, the nations are in distress. So Cushan, Midian, um, it's, it's affecting everybody. And so you have this God who's showing up incredibly powerful, intensively um, and extensively. And, and the last comment I want to make about it is this. We know from the geography in verse 3 that the, the God of the Exodus, uh, where before in Exodus, he, he comes down on the mountain and then he heads for Egypt, where this time he's coming down on the mountain and he is heading towards Judah. And then he arrives. And that should all of us, should make all of us swallow hard. This is, um, thank you for that, like the intensiveness and the extensiveness of really what we would call, like the technical word is theophany. This is a theophonic appearance, um, a God appearance in the Bible. And I guess I, I want to, I want to just add on to what you're saying what what becomes apparent and you alluded to it at the end of what you were sharing there is that it is completely ambiguous at this point in in the song about whether this is a good thing that god is heading for judah in fact it appears to be a disaster we have plague and pestilence swirling around his legs and all of creation, like the impact of this arrival of God leaves creation crumbling and shaking and totally, totally distraught, totally distraught. It like it just cannot survive the, the arrival of God. And so it's very it's very ambiguous. Like, what is this God going to do when he gets to Judah? Is he going to save? Is he not going to save? We have no, up to this point, there's no redemption language. There's nothing nothing salvific about it. It's just that God is showing up in Habakkuk's life. And I just wanted to highlight then, um, and I'm jumping ahead in the verses, and I hope that's okay with you, Jonathan. Habakkuk's response to this then is, is um, fourfold. This is verse 16. He says, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. So we have, we have four body parts that are named heart, lips, bones, legs. This is Habakkuk sees this and he's undone. His stomach turns over. It seems like he loses control of his bladder. Um, well, and those bowels too. Yeah, like he—it's pretty he, explicit. The NIV is not quite as explicit as the Hebrew. He he loses it emotionally. Like it's when it says his lips quiver. Like this is a grown man crying, and um, his he his legs just melt up to his bones. So this is the most like if if and i forget the the form of poetry where you you name a part to describe the whole maybe that's metonymy um but here we have four body parts that are named intimate body parts 
with um, bodily functions and fluids flowing all over the place. Uh, and, and Habakkuk is just, he just melted into a puddle by this. And so it's, it's um incredibly harrowing experience for him, especially with the ambigu ambiguous na nature of like, is it, is it going to be saving or is it not? Um, and maybe we want to talk about applications now, but I at least wanted to get that out there about well, what this it, does to him. Right. And just to bring some more language and, and theology to this, what do we like? What do we have going on here? Here you have a replication, um, an appropriation of Exodus 15 language where there the Lord is poeticized for who he is. He, and, and he's called a man of war. This is this is a God who is at war. There's no doubt about it. And if that makes anybody uncomfortable, it, it's probably because we haven't understand the meta narrative or actually what's going on in scripture. Um, here, God's arrival is pictured as warfare. And it, it, to the point that when I actually, when I preached this in my church, I was really sensitive to, to war veterans because of the language here of, of, of conflict and, and warfare. And, one thing that I think I can be helpful with is 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 to point out that this is there's a reason why God God is at war, uh, and and that's because humanity, well, originally went to war against Him. He he's he's our King. We rebelled against Him. We know that, and so right now we live in enemy occupied territory. So when we live in this world right now. Um, to the extent that it's re in rebellion against God, we are behind enemy lines. And the evil here, the brokenness here, we can understand it as enemy-occupied territory. And in fact, that's the, if, you, if you read the New Testament then, you find, we find out that's what the end of the world is. And you have, interestingly enough, when the New Testament talks about the end of the world, you have the same type of Im imagery. What do you have? You have uh, final cataclysm. You have plague. You have mountains quaking. Read Revelation. That's what you. Well, that's what you get. You get. You have nations getting scared. You have armies getting taken out. All of that stuff. And it's the same exact type of language, um, even highly poeticized. And and so what what is what is what is the prediction? What is being described there? Well, that God is coming, and. And so the New Testament is saying God's own son, Jesus Christ, is coming. And this is what's going to happen when he comes. And because we committed insurrection against God, and God is coming to reclaim his territory. And that is going to take warfare. It's going to take warfare. There. I, just, to, just to bring that up. Right. I wanted to talk about just one of the things that this chapter does, and I, I think when we work through it carefully and slowly like this, it, it kind of builds the sense. But at the end of the chapter, if I can just um, double down on this, we get this prophet who lands on joy. He Somehow he gets to joy and he gets to strength. And I want to point out where that begins. Like, what's the genesis of joy in Habakkuk chapter 3? What is What is the origin of joy and strength? And the origin of it, and this is counterintuitive, 
is actually fear. <laughs> like um, joy, for it to be true joy that endures even um, societal uh, devastation, like we're going to see later in this chapter, um, must begin with the fear of God. And um, Martin Luther, I, I, he, he really it is helpful on that. Like even in the in in his uh, meanings of the commandments that he gives, we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. But fear is first, and it is for Habakkuk too. Like that, if we could just point this out, like why why is it that maybe our joy is so mythical, like a unicorn or some or some beast in Harry Potter that we can never really put our arms around. And maybe, just maybe, and I think this this might be true for so many of us, it's because we live our lives so horizontally. And we forget that there's a vertical aspect to life, which which must include, for us to truly understand our world, we must have a grasp on who the true God is and come to fear him. And and when we... See, when we live vertically, it's 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 almost like if if something goes wrong in life, which is, it does all the time, we either need to fall into hopelessness because we can do nothing about it, nobody else will either, or we we fall into stress and anxiety because we think we have to fix it. See, and what Habakkuk is again beginning to believe is that the one who's going to fix all this stuff needs to be God, <laughs> needs to be God. Uh, so um, that is, that if we're going to get this chapter and get to the place where Habakkuk got to, we have to start there, like moving higher, you might say, to look for joy. Yeah, and uh, to build on what you said, he, he, we were looking to God and, and this is going to give us joy. And, and I think the way that we can get there is we notice what it is that God is coming to do. He is coming to reclaim his world. That's why he's at war here. And when he, this is, in fact, this is, this is the gospel in a certain sense. What is the gospel? That's what, that's what John the Baptist said. That's what Jesus said. Here's the good news. The kingdom of God, right? The kingdom of God is here. It's coming. It's near that kind of language. What is the kingdom of God? It's 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 harmony, it's it's shalom, it's peace, it's everything made right everywhere in the world. That's that's when the kingdom of God has finally, the kingdom of glory, the Lutheran theologians would call it, when God has made everything right. And so God is showing up to do that. He's showing up to do that, and that's the joy. My my only comment is I want to I want to get people ready for that. Because when God and, and this is, I think, very pastoral. I think it's very pastoral. It is, it is exactly what John, I'm running in the mold of John the Baptist here. I'm running in the, in the mold of Habakkuk here. I'm running in the, in, in the mold of Jesus here. Who, When he said, these people, when they notice that the kingdom of God is coming, God is showing up. He's reclaiming his world. He's visiting us, to use biblical language. Um, when he shows up, we have to be ready for his coming. Because here's the problem. If God is going to make a perfect world, <laughs> woo. That means he's, hmm, wow. If, 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 if it's got to be that there's no bad anywhere, no evil anywhere, everything has to be made right, what does that mean about us? And the Christian response everywhere is, we need to repent. 
In other words, what we're so God is showing up. What is look at this from Habakkuk? Let's get it right out of Habakkuk. The very first thing he knows God is coming. And in verse two, he leads with it. He says, In wrath, remember mercy. So God is coming, he's reclaiming his world, but he is leading off his prayer by saying, This is the spiritual state I'm going to be in repentance. I'm look, I am part of the problem. I am part of the problem. And I'm saying that in a very specific way, because I think that sometimes when Christians think about uh, repentance, what we do is we repent for the things we've done wrong. And that's a good thing. I'm not, I'm not criticizing that. What I am saying is that is just the poison fruit. The problem is the tree. We, we need to turn from far more from what we've done wrong. We need to turn for who we wrongly are. And that's what it, that's what it means. That's part of what it means to repent. It's part of what it means to repent. And the gospel, and this is what we turn to. The gospel is not that God accepts us for who we are, which by the way, I hope he doesn't. <laughs> I hope he doesn't accept us for who we are. I don't want God. I don't accept myself for who I am. I, I don't want God accept me for who I am. I want him to change me. I want him to make me better, infinitely better. I hope that I believe that that's what my resurrection's about. I don't want God to accept me. What God needs to do, what he promises to do, what Jesus, Jesus says, come to me the way you are, but he doesn't leave us the way we are. He forgives us the way we are. And then he empowers us to live differently from the way we are. And so the gospel is, I forgive you. Jesus says, I pardon you. And that's grace. So that's, God is coming. What do we do about that? We, we, we turn to him. We switch. In other words, we get out from behind enemy lines. <laughs> we wave the white flag. We we switch sides um, by the power of the spirit. Mm, that's that's so beautiful. <clears throat> the um, as as we move through the chapter, Jonathan, verses eleven to to fifteen close out um, this God appearance. And there, there's some critical language in there. Let me just read those verses, and then I'll, I'll make a couple comments. Um, verse 11 starts, Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath, you strode through the earth, and in anger, you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear, you pierced his head. When his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who are in hiding, you trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. And I just want to point this out. In the, in the, the beginning part of this poetry, we have... It, there's tremendous ambiguity about is 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 God coming to destroy everyone and everything whose side is God on? And now all of a sudden, the the salvific core, as one scholar put it, we get the salvific core of the entire book of Habakkuk right there in verse thirteen. This is so important. It says, "You came out to deliver your people." So now we know why. To save your anointed one. Now we know why. So 
the very the thing on which the whole book of Habakkuk turns is is this question is God saving does God deliver does God punish the wicked and the answer of Habakkuk is a resounding yes it's a resounding yes even when it doesn't look like it so what we have here then is that God and I want to say it this way God can do two things at once. He can do two things at once. God can at, at the same time that he saves his anointed one and delivers his people, at the same time, he can come out in wrath and punish. <laughs> and I think there's going to be some incredibly, uh, th that's some incredibly deep theology right there. But it's so, so important to believe that God can do two things at once. Yeah, and, and only I only need to put an exclamation point on what you're saying. In verse 11, what, what Habakkuk is doing poetically is he's actually freezing the action. So he is, it, he is invoking there the story of Joshua when the sun and moon are standing still. And, and God is taking the promised land. And allowing that that war to continue, and so no night is coming. So that so, so in other words, there you are. You're in the thick of the battle. He's freezing the action. We're entering into it, and the Lord's arrows are flying, and the lightning bolts are going. Uh, and here, uh, Habakkuk is imagining those lightning bolts as spears. It's which is really beautiful poetry if you think about it. the lightning bolts are spears. They're the Lord's spears. And Timothy, like you said, here's here is the here is the what I'll call the sight of faith. The sight of faith. Um, if if you saw this in person, you you might just think it's only wrath. But Habakkuk, with the eye of a prophet and with the sight of faith, sees that God is also saving. At the exact same time in verses 12 and 13 is that there you see the two things that Habakkuk discerns prophetically that God is doing in the midst of the battle. Um, he is he's both judging and saving and he's doing both at the exact same time. And through the exact same event. So like this is this is what like to go deeper because I really like that word for this section like to like. We and and we recognize this about human beings. Like when we look at human beings, we can't be just skin deep. We don't want to just let, look at mere appearances. Like the Christian wants to go deeper. We want to know about their faith and their hope and their character and things like that. And you know, even the secular world gets that that we don't want to be judged based on appearances, but we want to be judged on on the basis of the heart. And events work that way too. That's what the like Habakkuk is teaching us here. Is that there's going to be, you're going to look at it as a surface level, and you're going to be like, that looks bad. That looks like judgment. But Habakkuk can look at that and at the same time see God saving. And that that right there is um, the sight of faith, as you say. And th this is what we call this, the, the theology of the cross. Well, why the theology of the cross? Because when you look at when you look at a dying naked man hung on a cross, stuck with nails. On a, on a Roman crucifix, what do you see superficially? 
you see you see humiliation you see shame you see a dying man go but go deeper this is a, this is a salvific event you you see you what do we see we see our very salvation we see god's son and the bible helps us to interpret that event as um as our very redemption from sin death and the devil and and so the eyes of faith always see these events deeper, deeper, deeper. We have to go deeper. And just to tack on to what you're saying here, this here's a vital, this is a vital lesson for our lives and a lesson for us that when you experience a major event in your life, however you perceive it, here's here's the lesson you will actually never know that event by looking straight at it. You, you won't. What you have to do is you have to see into it. You do have to discern it like Habakkuk does with the eyes of faith. And the reason for that, as we've learned now, is that God, by the same action, can be doing two very different things. So I want to give some examples of this, both both like contemporary and like uh, right out of, right out of scripture. How, how about how about this event in life? You are having a comfortable, easy life. Now that that if you experience a, a person can have a comfortable, easy life, actually for two different reasons. It it may be because God wants to give you abundance and blessing. It may be that. It also may be because God is judging you. He is letting you go your own way. And so he he is it may not be his blessing at all. Maybe you get you got a handsome husband and career you love and, and just the number of kids you want because God knocked on your door of the doors of your heart so many times and you never answered. And so it, it may be a, a comfortable, prosperous life, maybe God's blessing in your life, or it may be God's judgment. You have that has to be spiritually discerned. Similarly, here's, here's another example. That was a positive example. Here's a negative one. Um, two people can suffer the same exact stock market crash. And one person loses everything. They are literally going to lose everything. But somebody else in the exact same stock market crash can gain absolutely everything. Why? Because God is taking them away from relying on money and he is turning that person to him. And so one person loses everything, and one person gains everything. And so in the first case, it's judgment. And in the second case, it's absolute salvation. It's the same event, but it's two different things that God is doing. And so now I want to move into some, some biblical things. Listen to this. In the flood, God did two things. He saved Noah and washed the earth clean of evil. And also, he washed the, clean, the earth clean of evil. He did two things. There's judgment and salvation. At the Red Sea, God saved Israel. Also, he washed the earth clean of Pharaoh. At Sodom and Gomorrah, God saved Lot. And he cleansed the evil of those city, cities with fire. On the cross... God saved us all and at the exact same time destroyed the devil and all his evil angels. In, in Christ's resurrection, God, again, God saved us all. And the exact same time, 
he killed death. This is one last one. A couple, well, second to last one. In your baptism, God saved you. And he simultaneously was putting down um, the evil in you and on you. And then finally, in the final cataclysm, at the second coming of Christ, Christ will save you. And at the exact same time, he says, I'm going to, I'm going to put away all evil and all evil people forever. It is both judgment and salvation at the exact same time. I love that. I love that so much. I, this, I want to explore this for just a second before we move into more of the chapter, but this impacts our joy, Jonathan. If we get this, this is going to impact our joy. And I want to just show you this. Um, it, when we when we were walking through the, the, the first part of the poem, I, I brought up Habakkuk's response. I want to do that again. Habakkuk says this, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls. And here's what, how it impacts his joy then. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I These events, and he's seeing two things. And he, he sees, on, on the surface level, he sees societal devastation. This is famine. This is, um, there's no food. There's no fig trees. There's no grapes. There's no olives. There's the fields got have, have nothing in them. There's nothing in the barns. There's no sheep. There's no cattle. And yet he goes deeper and he's able to say, I'm joyful here. I'm content in God who is. And look at what he says, the salvific core. This is what everything turns on. He says, God, my savior. This is what God does. He always saves, and he believes that, and so his joy goes deeper. He's able to say, my external circumstances are not going to impact my joy because I see past and deeper and through those external circumstances to see that God is using these things to save. I wanted to give one other anecdote. Alan Gardner. Alan Gardner. He was a missionary in 1851. His, his his um, missionary trip shipwrecked, and he literally was starving to death. And as he was starving to death, um, little by little, the people in his party died. There was, there was a search party out to go and find them. And he kept a journal and, and a diary. And as he was, as he was writing this journal, um, this diary... This is what he said. This is the last thing, because the, the, the people who are searching for him discover this. He said, I am overwhelmed. This is an incredible thing to say. I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. And now, before you kind of sweep that away as um, the sentiments and delusions of a dying man, Keep in mind that this is exactly what Habakkuk is saying. That the, that the Christian, when they look past their external circumstances, see, you know what? 
God's not judging me here. He's saving me. You're swept into, into this deeper um, and longer kind of joy. So I was just talking about giving some examples of deeper and, and um, deeper joy. My only, my only thing, Timothy, to add on to that would be, there was a Greek philosopher, Epictetus, who once said, it's not what happens to you, but how you react to it that matters. And so whatever, whatever is coming to us in life, as Christians, what we want to do is not just see the thing, but we want to see into it in such a way with the sight of faith that instead of saying, oh, no, you know, this is this is only bad. This is this is only going to hurt me instead to see into it and say, whatever is happening to me right now, what whatever is happening to me is saving and to see our lives, even 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 warfare. Because that's what Habakkuk, Habakkuk is experiencing horror of, of, of warfare, something that is made that we like like we already talked about, made him melt, um, turn into something that looks like Halloween. And and he's believing here that for him, everything is saving, that in fact, everything that ever happens to us is grace. It's so true. Like so. What, what happens with joy, like, and I'm harping on this, I know, is the first thing that is it goes deeper. So you look at you look at your external circumstances that whatever's sapping your joy, and you look deeper and you say, you know what, God's saving in this because I believe that my God's a savior God. But it also does a, a, a second thing. It helps you to look out. And so joy always looks longer and it becomes it becomes resistant and resilient um, because we're not like what, what, what can happen is we become so myopic in the way that we look at things. Like it's as if we're at the steering wheel of life and we're just, we're actually just staring at the speed limit or the, the speed dial on our car or at the steering wheel. And if we would just look up, you know, if we would just lift our eyes a little bit, you would see through the steering wheel that there is glory there's a party out there and that even though like traffic is 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 going nowhere at the moment and things aren't where we want them to be that the present the tyranny of the present it is not going to set my heart uh what's going to set my heart is lifting your eyes up to see that god is coming that god is saving that god is bringing us into his into his kingdom so joy becomes um resilient it becomes deeper and, and it goes out longer right just just to uh build on that again in here we have this man and he sees god coming he sees the the, the man of war uh coming his bowels turn over. Don't, don't think too long about what that means from the Hebrew. Um, he's melting. He's crying. Uh, we know that. Uh, but he gets to this place where he has a very particular uh, title for God. He says in verse 18 that it is God, my Savior. So 
he he it's the tyranny of the president he believes that the, the president is not going to rule that in fact god is going to save him from the present and and this is where timothy you've done a better job making a case for this than than, than i have so far that what I would like to suggest is that Habakkuk is, in fact, the prophet of joy. And it is time uh, to rise with Habakkuk to joy, because that's where he gets to here. He has landed on joy. He says, I will rejoice. And then he says, I will say it again. <laughs> here, there, there I'm referencing Paul a little bit. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be joyful in God, my Savior. So he is rising. He is rising to joy. And this, this is... I want to I want to be strong on this. The gospel is meant to cause us to experience joy. And we know this. And, and I want to I want to give you a couple a couple proofs of this. What did the apostle Paul say that the fruit of the spirit is? He said it was love, joy, <laughs> peace, patience and and it goes on like that. But the very second experience that the Apostle Paul says we are going to have when we have the Spirit living inside of us is, in fact, joy. And then to push this a little bit further, and, and I, I dare say I will, is that uh, very, okay, very famously, one of the great Christian triads is uh, faith, hope, and love. And we get the, the triad of faith, hope, and love in the writer, from the writer of Hebrews. Um, we, get it, we get it from Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. But if you read, for example, the Gospel of John very closely and you track the language of Jesus and, and, and you try to start to notice what the Lord Jesus, um, what, what, what he promises us that we're going to start to experience and then fully experience with him um, in eternity, um, he's got a triad too. So, for example, in the Gospel of John, track him. He, he expects that relationship with him is going to result in joy, peace, and love. That seems to be one of the triads that Jesus develops in the Gospel of John, for example. Joy, peace, and love. And so joy is a fundamental Christian experience, and it results from believing that God is our Savior, that God is our Savior. And so, And I want to push on this just a little bit more. So often, here's what happens, and I get this, I'm actually not critiquing this yet. So often when we think of God being our Savior, we say, that that means that Jesus is going to forgive my sins. Yes, <laughs> that's exactly right. Jesus is my Savior, he forgives my sins. Absolutely. The forgiveness of sin, but understand something. The forgiveness of sins, if you think about it, if you really think it out, it is a means to another end. And the end is that God forgives you so that you are reconciled to him and then are therefore enabled to live with him in his kingdom. So he, the forgiveness of sins is what enables us then to live in a place with him where there is no more war against evil and brokenness and sin because there is no more evil, brokenness, sin, and death. Because God has come, and every single every single trouble around us is gone, and that is the bringing of the kingdom, and that is what's coming, and that is what Habakkuk is is, is referencing here when he says that that God is my Savior. 
he is going to get me to this place where I can live with God. <laughs> In the beginning, uh, I, Timothy, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pause. I got I got one little last push here, but I'm gonna pause because I said a lot right there. No, keep keep going because I got one. I just have an illustration that I want to share about what this looks like in life, like this resilient, buoyant, faithful joy. So my last little push is this. God God is my Savior. He, he, let me wrap up this, this whole section in a way that I think feels appropriate to me. This is what we have here in Habakkuk chapter 3. Um, at one level, we have the God of the Exodus showing up here in Habakkuk again. This time he's coming into Judah. Now, we, if we can fast forward just for a second, we, we know that the God of the Exodus showed up one more time. And the translators, like, for example, the translators in the Gospel of Luke, they have no idea what to do with the word, but I think we do. Because on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Son of God showed up, and we're told there in the Gospel of Luke that he was speaking with Moses and Elijah. And there's a little Greek word there that says they were discussing the exodus of Jesus. They were discussing the exodus of Jesus. And we've been talking about the exodus. What does exodus mean? It means the way out. That's what it means. It means the way out. The way out of slavery. The way out of evil. The way out of suffering. And we know that Jesus is the one who made a way out for us. His cross is our way out of being in trouble with God, and his blood and his sacrifice was our amnesty and our pardon and the mercy that we need for us being rebels. And his resurrection is the way out of a broken, cursed world to a world where we will live in new resurrection bodies. And his gospel right now is the way out of, of anxiety, that's the, the conquering of our hearts right now, so that we trust him, that he is God, our Savior, and he's going to bring us out of our every trouble. By the way, that's why we call, that's why our Christians were first called in the Bible, the way, because we believe we had found the way. He's, and, it, and, the, and then his name is Jesus. Jesus, by the way, said that about himself. I am the way and the truth and the life. And I believe he is. Yeah. There's a, here in New York, we live in a concrete jungle. <clears throat> and every once in a while, I see this amazing thing. And it wasn't that long ago where I was getting on the seven train near, near the church here. And in between tucked in the, the cracks of the sidewalk was this beautiful flower. And I said to the flower, what are you doing here? Uh, it hadn't been trampled and somehow it had survived and, and gone on to thrive. And I think that's what we see here. We see, we see a besieged prophet, societal devastation filled with joy. We see a dying missionary on a beach with nothing to eat. And he's overwhelmed with the sense of the presence of God. And, and, and so Christians, too, they look past their circumstances in incredible um, darkness. And yet they, they are in awe of God and his saving power. 
If you are moved and you want to support this ministry, please go to www.